Hello, and welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hi, David. Hey, Tom. Good to see you this morning. I am excited this morning to have a well-known researcher in the world of psychology, social psychology, Dr. James Pennybaker out of Austin, Texas. And he's done extensive amount of research in many realms of psychology. But the aspect of it that's affecting me personally the most is his research on emotional expression or expressive writing, negative writing. There's lots of different terms for it. But it was in my, through my out, my, I was in chronic pain myself for 15 solid years. And I happened upon, happened upon these writing exercises by accident. And within two weeks after 15 solid years of absolute misery, things started to shift. And six months later, I was fine. Obviously, it wasn't quite that simple, but that started a process after 15 years of trying everything that actually broke, broke things loose. Then I didn't find out about Dr. Pennyacre's research until about five years later. And it's deep. It's really deep. And I'm excited that he's here. I spent some time with him in Seattle a few months ago. We had a great time talking. But I'd like to introduce Dr. James Pennybaker. He's a social psychologist out of Austin, Texas, at the University of Texas. Right, Jamie? That's right. So can you tell us a bit about yourself? I'm curious, clear back what your training is and how you ended up in Austin doing what you're doing. But how did you evolve into discovering how powerful this expressive writing was? So I was trained as a social psychologist. I was interested in, actually, I was probably influenced as much by Alan Funt as anything else, because I was interested in just some of the odd things that humans did and why. And I, early on, I was always interested also in the mind-body problem. Who gets sick? Why do they get sick? Things like that. Early on, I was doing some research on uh, the issue of physical symptoms. And there's a big problem that physicians have, that humans have, which is often we think we're sick. We go to a physician because we have these symptoms and a very high percentage of the time they are benign or there's nothing that, that, that a physician could find objectively that's the matter. And very often this is due to psychological things going on in our lives. In any case, I ended up doing a large-scale study to try to understand who, what kind of people reported symptoms. And I put together a, a questionnaire, and a, I worked with a group of undergraduates who helped me with this. And I used this opportunity just to ask, ask people anything. The rule was, we want to ask people anything we're curious about. So I was interested in the kind of foods they ate, the relationship to their mother, their father, etc. And one of the students in my group said, how about we ask them if they've ever had a traumatic sexual experience? And I thought, sure, that sounds interesting. And this was in the late 70s, early 80s. No one ever asked that question. In any case, we asked that question prior to the age of 17, did you ever have a traumatic sexual experience? And we passed the questionnaire out to hundreds of people, uh, primarily women. And what we discovered was that the university I was at at the time, 15% said they had had a traumatic sexual experience. And interestingly, those who endorsed that item had all kinds of health problems, symptoms, objective health problems. And I later did this again with a very large sample of several thousand people with, who, were primary, who were adults, average age about 35. 
And those who endorsed that item were much more likely to report having been diagnosed with cancer, heart disease, minor problems, major problems, colds, flus, it didn't matter. And this was kind of the beginning of something that started to fascinate me. What is it about having a traumatic sexual experience? And it turned out, as we did more and more studies, it wasn't a traumatic sexual experience per se. It was having any kind of major traumatic upheaval that you kept secret. And it so happens that sexual trauma is one that's particularly one that we keep secret. And as I started to discover, keeping any major secret was a major stressor on the body. It made people slept, didn't sleep as well if they were keeping a big secret. Their relationships with others were impaired because of it. And this started to make me wonder, what if we brought people to the laboratory and had them just talk about or write about a, a secret that they were holding? And my question was, if they somehow confided this or expressed it, would this improve their physical health? So that was basically it. I, I was, had no clinical training and it was just something I stumbled into and discovered that indeed, if we brought people in the laboratory and had them write for as little as 15 minutes a day for four days, that they, their physical health improved. They, uh, and, and their biological health, we found changes in immune function and so forth. So that was the whole birth of this. And over the, over the last 30 years, 35 years, not only have I been exploring this, but now labs all over the world have. The paper's a remarkable paper. I was sent a copy of it about five years ago. Can you just briefly describe that original experiment? Because if I remember right, you had people write for 15 to 20 minutes for four days in a row about something that was incredibly difficult. They did or did not have to share it. It was really up to them what they wanted to do about it. And on that original experiment, they weren't necessarily talking about it, they were simply writing things down. And it was one intervention, then you did follow up, what, four months later was what your follow-up time was? Do I remember that right? So, so the, the very first study was one where we essentially got a, a group of college students, and they were in a taking a psychology course. They were randomly assigned to write either about the, the most traumatic experience of their lives, and, or they were asked to write about superficial topics. And I'm giving you a, a shortened version of the study. It's a little bit more complex than that. But what we, and they wrote for 15 minutes a day for four consecutive days. And basically the instructions were, if they were asked to write about tra a traumatic experience was, really let go and explore your deepest thoughts and feelings about the most traumatic experience you've ever had. Ideally one that you haven't spoken to other people about. In your writing, you can tie it into other issues in your life, your relationship with your parents or childhood experiences, maybe other upsetting experiences you've had, issues in school, issues about who you'd like to be in the past, who you, who you would like to be in the future, or who you are now. You can write about the same trauma every day. You can write about different trauma every day. And many people have never had a trauma, but all of us have had major, major stressors or conflicts, and you can write about those as well. So that was the basic issue. And we asked permission from these students to get their student health center records. I was at a university at the time where most of the students were from out of state. They lived on campus and they used the student health center at fairly high rates. Then, and then you found improvements in literally 15 major domains of performance, both student performance, athletic performance, physical health, mental health. It was pretty remarkable the number of variables that improved. What were, what were say maybe the top five or six variables that you felt? Improved? Well, the, the primary thing so 
these different dimensions have been found over the years. That very first study, we were focusing just on, on uh, how often they went to the Student Health Center for illness. And we found that there was a, about a 50% reduction compared to our control group and compared to people who were not in our study. Then our next study we did, we looked at immune function. So we drew blood before the experiment uh, and afterwards and then six weeks later and found enhanced immune function. And then uh, later studies over the years, we found that they changed in how, they, uh, how, how well they slept. Uh, we had other studies looked at how they performed in school. There have now been, I should tell you, there have probably been a thousand studies done on this expressive writing. So it's now it's gone into all of these domains that I never would have thought about. Right. The students do better in class. They do better on, on big exams they're about to take, like the SATs or the MCATs or the LSATs. They uh, are absent from work less. They, um, you know, all of these different markers show that somehow expressive writing helps people to get their lives more organized, more structured. They're getting to this point where they're just not thinking about the trauma as much. They're not obsessed about it. And now they can, their, their eyes open and they see the world in a, in a more uh, measured kind of way. I see. Well, it's interesting because it's incredibly simple intervention. And I know there's some de debate about what kind of expressive writing is the best way. When I, I know the original researchers are mostly expressing negative emotions. And then my understanding and my personal experience has been, well, first of all, when I, in my first book, I wrote, you know, really about the negative writing to be write down your thoughts and rip them up immediately. And it could be anything. And it was fascinating the number of people who simply refused to write down negative thoughts. Did you find that experience? Um, I, not much, not and, much. and it, it was, it's probably who the, the people are and also the nature of the experiment. But I, I have seen it when I've dealt with individuals on a case-by-case -case basis. And one of the ways I, I was able to break this was uh, have people, instead of writing things down on paper, to just do finger writing, to write in the air with their fingers. Really? Or I had another case of a person who came who wanted to um, do express to wanted to deal with the issues associated with expressive writing and I sent him to my lab and just ha gave him the usual instructions and you know he just didn't connect to it so I sent him back and I just told him to talk into a tape recorder okay and I found that with him talking into a tape recorder was really powerful for him whereas the actual writing wasn't Right. That's interesting about the finger writing. I have, I've had a couple of people also do that. It's funny though, I, I, as you know, I went through an extreme anxiety situation, including full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder. And you do really become afraid of your thoughts. They seem real concrete and very real. And they feel like they're actual foes and actually real. And of course, they're producing chemical changes in your body. Your body's reacting to, the, reacting to these things badly. And there's been some research showing, actually, I finally concluded, there's some research showed that if you just start writing, a lot of times different thoughts come into play that are negative also. Somehow expressing yourself works. But my personal experience, and I think the pain world sort of feels this way, that if you spend a lot of time analyzing and understanding your traumatic past, 
that at least in the world of chronic pain, it's somewhat counterproductive. Once you get the story out once to repeat it over and over and over again, it tends to be counterproductive. Would you agree with that? I do actually. In fact, I, that's why I've always recommended people just writing maybe three or four times because I've always thought of expressive writing as kind of a life course correction that we're moving along in life and something is bugging us, really bothering us. And we finally sit down to write it. And, and the idea is, is that if you know you're only going to be writing about it three or four times, your goal is to get to, to focus on it, deal with it and move on. And I've had a few people who didn't appreciate, uh, appreciate this and they just continued writing and what they in the in the weeks and months later I didn't know about this they would come back and tell me you know you know Jamie your writing sucks it, it doesn't do any good and I said well tell me about it and they said well I've been writing for the last year ever since I saw you and I said no 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 right. and what happens is is when you start writing about the same thing every day it's the same thing as rumination. That's, that's the very definition of depression. If you continue pulling that scab off day in and day out, you're right. not, there's no, there's no gain. Right. That's why I think that there's different types of psychotherapy that are very effective, but endlessly analyzing something over and over and over again is a big problem. But what's evolved in the situation I'm in personally, but also with my patients consistently is that we do have people who write for five or 10 minutes literally every day. It can be positive or negative. Um, doesn't really matter. Just get thoughts out there. And to me, I have them instantly tear it up. And to me, th there's two reasons to tear it up. As you know, you can't control your thoughts. And to me, the writing is a, a metaphor for separation. The thoughts are on paper. <clears throat> You're here. And what happens, I have them tear, up, tear them up for two reasons. One of them is to write with freedom. It could be positive, negative, bizarre, normal, rational, whatever it is. And the second thing is to not spend time with them, not to analyze them. And so that paper is there, you're here, and that is now connected with vision and feel, which is part of the unconscious brain. And to me, when I write, it's like a metaphor for the day. It changes the day somehow. Conversely, and I had a tough start. I mean, I had 16 of these seven, 16 or 17 of these 30 mind-body symptoms real physical problems, migraine headaches, rain in my ears, skin rashes, all sorts of stuff kept popping up in my body. If Even now, if I quit writing, first thing that goes south is my sleep. These little skin rashes pop up, the, pop up in the back of my wrist. My feet start to burn. And it's consistent. It, at about three weeks, if I quit doing the writing, the symptoms come back. But again, I think you might have a friend, Joel Conico in Seattle, who has just been brilliant with chronic pain work. And his genius was just being able to be with people and listen and help people feel safe. And my theory, I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I'm not a social scientist, but my theory is that the essence of healing pain, whether it's mental pain or physical pain, is feeling safe and nurtured. And your body chemistry changes into oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and a great chemical bath as opposed to adrenaline, cortisol, and histamines. And if you hold on to the writing, try to analyze them and say, don't analyze these thoughts or try to fix them because your brain's on the problem. So to me, neuroplasticity is awareness, separation, and then redirecting. What the writing does, from my perspective, it creates an awareness and separation in one move. Then the redirecting could be good food, good wine, good friends, uh, visualization, exercise, et cetera. And that we always are really clear that the writing is not the solution because uh, people have the same experience that you talk about. It says, I write and I write and I write.
and I still hurt. And, and so I really discourage also excessive writing. And then the other thing, there's a couple of papers on verbal expressive writing, which you just mentioned, where you can simply verbalize your thoughts in a quiet room. And somehow you've externalized the thoughts somehow. But, um, but you're absolutely right. I find, I, I like the way you said this originally, is that when you suppress anything, <clears throat> it, it affects your body's physiology somehow. Why do you think the writing being as simple as it is, is so effective? And, and, and also, why hasn't more attention to it been paid in the both medical and psychological world? Um, I think it's effective for about five different reasons. And, you know, from a scientific perspective, that's a terrible answer. I think we all want to say, well, it's this uh, neurotransmitter, it's this phenomenon or whatever. But for the last 35 years, there have been study after study after study trying to find this silver bullet that explains it. If you stand back, I think there's about four or five different active ingredients, ingredients and, and, and they differ in terms of their potency. One is by writing, the first thing you're doing is just acknowledging that the event happens. Very often, we, you're, you're what now? You're just acknowledging that the event happens or okay. that, that, uh, that you have had this experience. Very often, I've dealt with people who say, oh yeah, this happened, but it's not important. And I don't talk about it. Right. And if I talk about it, it'll just make it real. Well, writing about it makes it real. It is real. The second is the mere labeling of the experience and also labeling of your emotions seems to make a big difference. And there've been some interesting work, some um, um, functional MRI research has looked at this. The mere labeling of an emotional experience seems to change the way that the experience is organized, at least to some degree in the brain. Another is that writing about, about something helps to helps us to find some understanding or meaning. One of the interesting things is if you've had a major upheaval and you don't talk about it, here's what happens. You're walking down the street, you think about some aspect of it, and you think, oh, I should have said this. And you, some other aspect comes in, you think, oh God, this is gonna ruin my financial situation. Another comes up and something else happens. But what writing does is it forces you to bring all aspects of this major upheaval together or this stressor together. And so it starts to bring some kind of organization or structure to it. And keep in mind, why, do, why is our brain, why do we keep ruminating about something? Well, the reason is, is our brain is trying to put it all together, but in a sense, it's so complex, it's not it can't be done and we're also trying to push it out of our brains the whole time as well so i think that's another one all of this is associated with something in psychology we call working memory sometimes it's referred to as executive function etc and one of the big problems is is that when we're obsessing about something we don't sleep as well and this is one of the best symptoms of depression but it's also a symptom of a person trying to work through a traumatic experience the fact that when people write, they tend to sleep better, I think is profoundly important because we know, we know that sleep is associated with immune function. We know it's associated with emotional state. We know it's associated with eating, et cetera. And the fact is, is that when we're able to still the mind, we sleep better. Another factor is that, and by the way, everything I'm telling you, there's some research behind each of these. Right. One other issue is, is that 
when we're under a lot of stress, we don't, uh, are you going to be cutting this? We, we, no, we can, we, we can edit this, yes. Okay. Let me let the, the sirens go by for just a second. Okay. Well, this, is, this, is, this is a wonderful interview, by the way. I really enjoy I'm actually learning a lot myself right now. This is fantastic. <clears throat> okay. So one other aspect is the social aspect. When a person is obsessing about and completely lost in its, an upheaval, and we've all experienced this when we've known somebody who's, say, going through a divorce or, or where all they can talk about is that one experience. We as friends don't really enjoy being around them. So we, we start right. pushing them off. And all of a sudden, a person who's like this isn't really a very good friend. And if, I, if I'm able to come to terms with some upsetting experience, all of a sudden, not only do I, have to, do I not have to talk about it all the time, I can now listen to other people better. And we've done some studies and other researchers have done studies where we have them wear a, it's essentially a glorified tape recorder. It comes on for say 30 seconds, goes off for 12 minutes and we can tr look at how people uh, go about their days. They might wear these for two or three days before writing and then several weeks afterwards. After people write about upheavals, they, end up talking more to other people, they're better listeners, they laugh more, they're more socially engaged. In other words, if we line up all of these phenomena, we see that there's a change in how people are thinking, of how they're sleeping, how they are processing information, they have more working memory, they do better on tests, they do better in school, and they're more socially engaged. And all of those things together, I think, are bringing about changes in people's both physical and mental well-being. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I think that's an incredibly wonderful explanation of what's going on. I mean, it's, it's incredibly simple. Do you think there's a particular version? I know you, you think people shouldn't write a lot. I've evolved my version. Um, it appears to me that whatever version of writing you use, that it can be helpful. In other words, if one type doesn't work, then try another. And I'm assuming, I'm just guessing, you probably haven't found one method really superior over another. I have not. And this... This comes to another issue. Uh, it's been funny over my career. People have said, oh, I don't understand. Why haven't you licensed this? Or why don't you have courses to teach the right way to write? And one of the issue, reasons I haven't is there is no right way to write. That, that people have to be their own scientists to see what works. Right. I can tell you in terms of my own research, I know that writing for 15 minutes a day for four days seems to work pretty well. Right. I've also had people write for 10 minutes and then take a 10 minute break and then do another 10 minutes and 10 minute break and then another 10 minutes. And that seems to work pretty well. Right. I know some people who have had people write and tear it up immediately. Other people who uh, I know who I trust, they say, I write and then I keep it. And the next day I will go and edit it and rewrite what I have done. Now for me, that sounds horrible. Right. I know for this, this friend of mine that it really works for her. The point is, and another thing is, people will might write two or three times and they don't benefit, and then they'll try writing with their non-dominant hand, and they find that's really beneficial. Doesn't right. work for me, but be your own scientist. If after three or four days it's not working for you, trust yourself. It's not working for you. Right. Or try another kind of writing or talking to somebody or just go jogging, go to a bar. Right. That, 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 that's a joke there. But, but you get the idea is 
you have to be an experimenter. Don't, there is no one true way for everybody. Right. I mean, I agree with that. I always tell people the way you solve chronic pain. And I think, by the way, mental pain is a bigger problem than the physical pain. Because as you know, you can't escape your thoughts. But um, I agree the three parts getting better as far as chronic pain goes is understanding the problem, becoming aware of the nature of pain and the factors that affect it for you personally. The second thing is treating every aspect of it simultaneously. It's like fighting a forest fire. But the third part that's so critical is the patient takes control. And when you're, and so first of all, one of the antidotes to anxiety is control. It's not the ultimate answer, but one of the answers to anxiety is control. When we take charge of your own care, things start to change internally, I think. And plus, since you're individual and a very unique individual and chronic pain is so complex, the only person who can actually really solve the problem is that person themselves. I agree. So taking control is a big deal. Um, I want to finish off this section really quickly. This, this, we're going to talk to you in a second about the um, nature of obsessive thinking, where you're trying not to think about something, think about it more. And of course, the expressive writing addresses that very carefully. But one metaphor I'd like to leave the audience, and I've written about this several times, is that to me, anxiety is a symptom generated by the body's stress chemicals in the autonomic nervous system. It's a symptom and a result of a threat, not the, it's not the cause, it's, this, it's the sensation generated by the threat. And the way you decrease anxiety is you decrease the body stress chemicals. And you can do that directly with mindfulness meditation relaxation, or you can decrease your activity of the nervous system. And the metaphor has been helpful for me and many of my patients, it's like learning a new language. For instance, if you wanna learn Italian, you'll take the classes, go through the repetitions. But let's say five years from now you can speak Italian something happened to your brain. New connections, new myelin, different things happen to your brain, but you can now physically speak fluent Italian. You didn't learn Italian by not speaking English. You didn't try to avoid English. Italian didn't disemerge. You had to really focus on the Italian to learn it. Same thing with chronic pain is if you're trying to fix chronic pain and analyze it and solve it and on this endless journey to fix it, your attention is still on the pain and the solution from a neuroplasticity standpoint, you literally change the structure of your brain about creating a vision of what you want your life to look like. And I call this new language, quote, an enjoyable life, unquote. And the brain's main function is to survive. That's the first role is to survive. The reason we develop social skills, of course, it, it enhances our survival and it's a very, very deep need. And as you well know, I, I feel a little awkward talking to social scientists here, but as you know, the basic need to survive that's how the social part of us evolved is our need to survive and when you have social isolation by which by the way 53 percent of americans do you develop the identical symptoms as chronic pain and so what happens is that this enjoyable life you create a vision what do you want your life to look like then as you pursue it your brain actually develops in that direction so just like you can't learn French by avoiding English, you can't come out of chronic pain by trying to avoid chronic pain because the default language is survival. And so what you're doing is like developing an, a, a virtual desktop on your computer. You now have a new nervous system that honestly doesn't have pain. And there's Dr. Howard Schumer, myself, and several people around the country, uh, you met David Taubin also in Seattle, is that we're watching people go to pain-free. It's not about managing pain. People's brains really do change. They really do go to pain-free, and then they thrive at a level they never thrived at even before they started to have chronic pain. 
it's a remarkable experience. And again, from my perspective, I say, look, the expressive writing, whatever form it takes, it's not the solution, but it's that one step from neuroplasticity of awareness and separation. And then of course the redirection could be anything you want. It turns out that goal setting or creating that vision is, is one of the most powerful parts of the whole process because the other thing that's evolved in the last bit is powerful, almost as powerful as expressive writing, is that if you're my patient in my office, office, I would say, look, when you walk out of the door of my office, you will never discuss your pain ever again with anybody. And I didn't realize how much people talked about the pain over and over and over again. And I don't know how much research has been done on this, but it is unbelievable how much people in pain talk about their pain. So I so said, you're, you're not going to discuss your pain ever again. And you, you can watch literally the whole family start to relax. And then the second thing is, it's just no complaining. Don't complain. Because really, that's where your brain is at, right? It's easy to complain. And people come in at two weeks just with that one process plus expressive writing. It's unbelievable. So anyway, those are some of the things that's evolved since I actually talked to you last is, is now the uh, not discussing the pain. Um, it's been an interesting evolution. That's fabulous. That's, it, it's so interesting to hear you talk because I now have this better sense of why you're interested in obsession but, uh, and how all these things tie in with some many things that I've studied over the course of my career, which, which are more on the psychological side, but get us to the exact same, uh, same point. Right. Well, Jamie, thank you very much for your time. We're going to talk to you in a minute about the uh, obsessive thought patterns and how those develop in, in what which you and Dr. Wagner have called the ironic effect, et cetera. But I really appreciate your time. Any final thoughts to the audience? No. My primary recommendation, whether you're in pain or not, is uh, you know set aside some time and just do a little bit of writing on your on your own, and you might find that it. Uh, uh, gives you a, a new lease on life. Thank you very, very much. Well, David and Jamie, I want to thank you both for a very insightful episode. And I want to uh, invite our listeners back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And for more information, remember to go to the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.